Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison and I've got Ros Taylor here with me to set up the week ahead for you. Hi, Ros. How are you? Hello. Not too bad, yeah. Good weekend. Last chance to enjoy lockdown before it all gets unlocked. Uh, not at all the last chance, judging by what we've been hearing. <laughs> so we've seen the papers. It is unlocking timetable day for England, at least. And the leak is that it's going to be schools back on March the 8th and then expanded social contact. So coffees in the park and that by the end of March. But retail and restaurants are going to stay closed longer. Is it overambitious? Is it cautious? Is it hitting the right spot? What do you think? This is a pretty cautious timetable and it will really disappoint people in the COVID recovery group. It does privilege schools and social contact and that is, in my view, a very good thing. But the price that we pay for that is that pubs, restaurants, even outside, won't be able to open for quite a long time and even non-essential shops are going to have to stay shut longer while we see what the effect of unlocking is or partial unlocking is on schools. So uh, I think people are going to be fairly disappointed once the import of this, uh, the impact of this sinks in and they realise that what many people, quite frankly, are already doing at the moment, I mean, it is not going to be allowed to have a uh, coffee with your friends, one with one friend outside until the 8th of March and not with a few more until the 29th. And yet, you know, I was out yesterday in London, I would have seen at least 50, 100 people breaking those rules already. And uh, while I'm not, I'm not going to condemn people for making their own choices about and decisions about the risks of outdoor transmission. It's far better that they're drinking things outdoors than indoors. It is nonetheless going to be very difficult for the government to hold the line on this. I think the reason he's b- being so cautious, apart from the obvious and the scientific advice, is that the situation around the country. It's looking quite different. It's starting to split off again. What we saw in the first lockdown was that there were still pockets of infection in Yorkshire, in the northwest, and in the in the in the East Midlands in particular. And whereas in the London and the southeast, the virus had really, really diminished, and we're seeing that separation again happening right now. And the trouble is that if Johnson doesn't take the whole country with him, if he starts going into tears again, we will get into the old rows and the old problems with a great deal of resentment and bitterness and unhappiness because some parts of the country are being held behind. So that's what he wants to avoid at all costs as well. That is one of the key things that has been trailed, isn't it? The end of regional tears, it's got to be one rule for the whole of England. Um, is that going to be sustainable, though? If, if, as you say, different regions are developing different COVID profiles. 
because you know you can't whatever might be being said about uh, you know following the science you can't disagree with that yeah that's going to be very difficult as schools reopen and you possibly see spikes in some areas there will be a lot of pressure on central government for those areas to lock down again and potentially from teachers unions as well and and uh, local councils for the schools to close so it will be a real flashpoint if those spikes develop. How does he deal with those? And I don't think he's yet got a plan for doing that. But the real issue that he has to tackle and that he's not tackling because it's too scary for him is what level of COVID are we happy to see in the community? And of course, there are some people who say we should go for zero COVID. I would say about 80% of scientists say that's not a realistic proposition. But how much are you prepared to tolerate? Because, of course, some some degree of COVID does make it more likely that mutant strains will develop and potentially make vaccines less effective. So that's the real struggle that he's 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 got, the real decision that he's got to make, and he hasn't at all made that yet. As you mentioned, this is not at all what the, the hardliners wanted and the CRG will, will not be happy. They wanted all legal restrictions gone by the end of April. That's everything, all of it. Do you think this is setting up another collision this week between Johnson and his restive backbenchers? Yeah, I think they're going to be very unhappy. They're going to be very happy, for example, that people can't, can't go on holiday over Easter. They're going to be unhappy that they can't sit outside at a pub. And it's, you know, this is great news for off licenses because once the rule <laughs> of six comes back in at the end of March, everyone will be going to the office and getting a, getting a bottle, <laughs> getting bottles and sitting in the park. And uh, that will lead to all kinds of policing problems, but let's not go there right now. Uh, but it is an acknowledgement that inside is the real problem. Getting people inside is where COVID spreads. And the government has acknowledged that in keeping pubs and restaurants shut for much longer. And yet that, I mean, without one to harp on about pubs, but I'm basically battering the door of pubs at the moment. I'm, lo- <laughs> I'm losing my grip. It's kind of hard to make the argument against beer garden stand up, apart from the fact that you've kind of usually got to go through the pub to get into the beer garden. Even even if you're a, a uh, an enthusiast, you know, for pretty sort of stringent means it's kind of hard to make the case for that isn't it beer gardens yeah. are outside i know it, it, it is um, more difficult but on the other hand what you've got to remember is that when people drink um as you know andrew they tend to lose their inhibitions and enjoy themselves and what they well, do there is they, <laughs> they hug each other and they start making it more likely <laughs> that even outside they will not maintain social distancing now this of course will also happen in parks uh, and it will happen in a less supervised way uh, in parks as i say it's 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 bad news if you're um if, if you're a landlord and it's great news if you're um flogging cheap tinnies you're my best mate you are oh dear i've given you <laughs> coronavirus um so across the front pages this morning this is all being presented as march to freedom and great escape and beginning of the end there is not exactly euphoria but at least a, a sense out there that people are kind of looking forward to this at least being partly finished is this kind of unlocking going to successfully cover up the government's failings that have led us to this bad p- position so far I think the continued focus on what you're allowed to do when will captivate the public for a while. And I think the vaccine rollout undoubtedly, because let's face it, nobody can deny the vaccine rollout is really successful. We've got mm. now coming up with a third of the of the population vaccinated. But of course, that brings its own questions about when unlocking should happen. Uh, and it comes back to what I mentioned earlier about if you tolerate any level of COVID in society. 
or whether you don't, which is a question that Johnson is simply not ready to answer uh, because the consequences of holding on for zero COVID are, could be, you know, as far as he's concerned, as far as the COVID recovery group is concerned, unthinkable because it would mean indoor spaces potentially closed right till the end of the summer. But on the other hand, we, we simply do not know how the virus will respond and whether it will, how quickly it will, it, it may start to evade vaccines. We don't know that. We mm. don't know what the, the impact of having COVID already, which a lot of people have already had, has, will have on herd immunity. We always assumed that at the beginning that once you'd had COVID, well, that would give you a degree of immunity. It may do in the long term. It may not. Mm. And another question is how fast vaccines can change and, and boosters can be made to, to cater for these new variations. So he really is, he's still in it very much in the dark, much more than he thought he would be, that he could have possibly imagined he would have been a year ago. But the, the momentum is definitely with uh, unlocking and, and opening up in the Telegraph this morning, hotline to the hard right brain, is claiming that caution is the biggest risk. And it's warning about scientists moving the goalposts as if when you, new data comes in, that's moving the goalposts. Can we expect the drum to be banged harder and harder that, you know, effectively it's done now. We might as well be unlocking as fast as humanly possible. Yeah, you. I think you can very much expect that. Uh, the argument will be that uh, the... And the NHS was about to be overwhelmed. We had to lock down to do that, although some people, of course, said we didn't. But, you know, the vast majority of people realised that we did. Uh, but with the NHS not in danger of being overwhelmed soon, that the argument for lockdowns evaporates. And that is that is the uh, the developing argument that you will hear from the CRG. How strong is public support for those stringent measures, though? How, is it? I mean, we've, we've now vaccinated a third of the population, as you say. Are the public still behind maintaining the majority of the lockdown measures? I think many of them are, but that could very quickly change as death rates fall and as hospitalisations fall. Uh, the public mood is very, very volatile and it is very hard to say how people would. And it's a great divide as well. I mean, we, the, the experience of lockdown is not at all the same. If you're kind of pretty happy and working from home and not your life isn't much change and once you can move, meet up in a group of six outside, you're happy, then that's not going to, lockdown doesn't hurt you very much. If you're running a business that dep- that is closed, if you're in another position where you, you can't, you can't, basically can't function, lockdown looks very, very different to you. And so I think, to be honest, in the last next few, judging by the public behaviour that I've seen in London, of course, I'm not seeing anywhere else, in, outside, I think people are making their own decisions about uh, what the risk is. Um, and I think that will only grow over the next month or two with strict restrictions. And then let's face it, they are strict restrictions continuing. School's going back. What do, what are the teaching unions saying about this and how will uh, schools opening first go down with them? Well, the teaching unions are cautious, particularly about letting secondaries back. We do know that COVID spreads more quickly and is, well, you're more likely to, they're more likely to transmit it in secondary schools. So there is a degree of caution. There are also worries that the school, not all schools could reopen on the 8th because there will be a testing requirement uh, for secondaries. And they say that they won't be able to do that all on one day. Uh, so they'll have to stagger the return with different year groups and so on. If you've been listening to me at all on the bunker for the last year or so, you'll know that I, you know, have always thought that schools should be the first thing to go back. So personally, I, I think it should be a priority. And I think the slow pace of opening and the rest of the economy should reassure 
teachers to some extent that the government will be waiting to see what impact this reopening does have on the infection rates. What have we learned about kids as, as spreaders, I mean, primary school kids and, and secondary kids? Was that one day back in January actually a spreader event? We just don't know. It's right. very hard to tell because there, there is muddled evidence. Where we don't know how much people are getting together over the Christmas holidays. It is true that um, if you look at these places where schools were did not open, like London and the South East, there's been a faster fall in COVID infections. But it's very hard to necessarily draw conclusions from that because those were also places where you were not allowed to get together over Christmas. The evidence is fairly mixed and is used by different camps and adapted by different camps for their own purposes. I think it's fair to say that in primary schools, there is very little real transmission. When there is transmission in primary schools, it's between teachers in the staff room and so on. It's not so much between teachers and pupils. With secondaries, uh, it is a different story, particularly with older kids. But, you know, again, you have to remember that most teachers over 50 will be vaccinated very soon, which is um, a very reassuring thing. And in kids, uh, in, in kids, COVID infection is very, very rarely anything serious at all. Uh, one big question ought to be, what are Labour going to say about this? But Keir Starmer's kind of got his own problems at the moment. The, uh, the the big economy launch last week didn't really set the world alight. Firstly, what are you expecting Labour to say on the COVID restrictions? Uh, Labour support the um, school reopening on March the 8th. And I think they will basically be on board with the government. I think this is, uh, I, I think will be hard given this is a cautious, cautious um, reopening for Labour to deviate from that much. I think they'll be fairly happy with it. It's hard to kind of out-cautious it, isn't it? Cautious Keir Starmer out-cautiousing people. Um, but he, he has he has got, like I say, bigger fish to fry. It was quite a bad week uh, for him. And the kind of chorus of complaint, not just from the Labour left, that he's being too quiet, he's saying nothing on Brexit. Uh, what kind of a week do you think uh, Keir Starmer's in for? I think he's going to continue to struggle to get very much attention on him. There was, of course, that speech last week when he set out a few tentative new ideas. Um, he also, interestingly, jumped on board with the uh, idea that's already been floated by some in the Conservative Party of COVID bonds, which will basically be like war bonds. You uh, People would be encouraged to invest, if essentially, in the country and get a kind of a fairly minimal interest rate, but it would be better than you're currently getting from your savings. Mm. And uh, so, so his ideas are still cautious. I personally think Starmer's moment is not now. Yeah. Starmer is never going to prosper when we have a very successful vaccine rollout and when he is not offering the, you know, the uh, the prospect or the idea of a faster unlocking than, than the Conservatives are. He not only can he not do that, I don't think he wants that either. So mm. Starmer's moment will come when the economy is reopened and people turn around and say to themselves, well, actually, life isn't as wonderful as I thought it would be. Uh, you know, it was nice reopening, yeah. but it's not so fantastic. And then I think is the time when he could actually start making hay. But uh, understandably, he is... Uh, supporters are frustrated because they see the polls going up for Johnson. They see, you know, sa- continuing satisfaction with his leadership, despite his obvious, mm. his obvious and enormous failings. And naturally, that leads to frustration on the left because there is, in the run-up to the May elections in particular, a desire to get going to start making a difference. But at the moment, it is very hard. 
one thing that the unlocking has definitely uh, shoved off the front pages is the Matt Hancock COVID contract story. The High Court ruled last week that Hancock acted unlawfully in awarding about twelve billion pounds in contracts without those contracts being published, and nothing happened. There was no resignation because people don't resign over anything anymore. Do you think that's going to will that bleed into this week? There's a little bit of another story growing around it. It may do. I think Hancock is feeling very chipper at the moment. He was very forthright. He was very unapologetic yesterday on Sunday. Mm. He knows what matters to people. So as the NHS is concerned right now is whether hospitals are being overwhelmed and uh, the vaccination rollout. So he, he's fairly confident that he can avoid these old chats about who, you know, who fulfilled PPE contracts because they simply don't matter to most people. And I'm sorry, I say this over and over again on the bunker mm. and what matters and what doesn't, but he knows what the big focus is on and that's why he's being so defiant. Um, I don't think I don't think we're going to get them that way, put it that way. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm holding out for a kind of John Major type uh, build-up of sleaze. I mean, this tale this morning about Hancock's mate and the local pub landlord getting 30 million quid of NHS work despite never having produced medical supplies before. These are little things that can build into big things, but they, it takes time, doesn't it? And people don't want to hear it in the middle of a crisis. Yeah, I think uh, nepotism does stink. Uh, but mm. I don't think it quite cuts through in the same way to the uh, to the uh, public as it used to. Meanwhile, we're going to be softened up for the budget, which is happening next week. Uh, what kind of things should we look out for? Apparently, Sunak's going to put off the real pain, but he's going to raise corporation tax. He needs to cover nearly three hundred billion in COVID spending. What are you looking out for? Yeah, I mean, I'm looking out for continued support, obviously, for pubs and restaurants and 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 people who are on furlough because you can't abandon them now. Mm. Uh, and uh, there's more months now, clearly, when they're when they're going to be struggling. And if if these businesses do start going under in big numbers, it does look, you know, very. Uh, it, it does make things very difficult, and um, particularly, of course, with the impact of Brexit as well, which is having its its own uh, effect on exporters in particular. So, I can I think we can see continued business support. I I don't think we will see any anything like a threatened raise in in, in income tax or mm. anything like that. And also because you've got the prospect of council tax going up as well people just don't want that right now and this is yeah. another reason why the covid bonds have an appeal because they're basically a way of raising money from the public without taxing them yeah um, something that will happen this week is the supreme court is going to decide if shamima Begum, who left london when she was a schoolgirl to join islamic state in 2015 they're going to decide if she should be if she should be allowed back into the uk to try and reclaim her british citizenship Away from the uh, pros and cons of the case and the rights and wrongs of it, um, this is probably going to be this week's culture war rage field, isn't it? I'm not sure this fits into the culture war template, Mm. to be honest. Um, I think it's a very different matter. I mean, it's a, a woman who was 15 when she left Britain, clearly did an exceptionally stupid thing. And the question is whether you view that compassionately or whether you say that she you know she basically has no right to return because she screwed up when she was 15 it really it really comes down to to that rather than a, a great deal of um, legal wrangling and I, as i say i don't think it fits into the kind of indignant culture wars t- template that the government have been pushing i think it's altogether a different issue you might say that. I'm going to find out what Loza Fox has got to say about it and because I reckon they will be all over it, like an exceptionally horrible rash. Um, and finally, something uh, that you wanted to uh, draw the listeners' attention to, Ross, the, the Liverpool Tunnel, the tunnel across the Irish Sea, or the, the multiple tunnels. What What is this, and does it exist outside of Boris Johnson's brain? 
No, 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 it doesn't. Um, this, this is, but uh, I, I saw it released yesterday, and I, I predicted that uh, unlocking was not going to be um, quite as um, uh, fantastic as some people were expecting. As a result, it's just it's just a dead cat. But um, uh, basically, the idea is that you would use the Isle of Man as a roundabout. Because it can be a bit difficult to build long tunnels under the sea. And there was talk of, you know, long tunnel between Scotland and Northern Ireland. The idea is that the, the uh, Isle of Man would be a hub and coming out from it would be spikes to Liverpool and uh, further up the coast and to Scotland and to like Northern Ireland. Like the legs Ireland. of man, literally the yeah. legs of man. Yeah, yeah. And apparently, I mean, it's hard to believe anything the Mail on Sunday says clearly, but, but, uh, Johnson is, is keen on this idea. And apparently poor Peter Hendy, who um, runs Network Rail, has been forced to produce a document setting out how it could work. So we await this document with interest. Uh, <laughs> Peter Hendy is a very straightforward guy. I was on a, I was on a Zoom call with a couple of weeks ago who was talking to some LSE students. And, um, I, I, I can imagine what he thinks about this in private. But we'll see what he has to say about this in public. Well, I am strongly against any more tunnels out of Liverpool because we've already got two and it's going to be confusing. You'd like, all I wanted to do was get to Birkenhead and now I'm at the Laxey Wheel. This is not, <laughs> you know, this cannot be allowed to go ahead. And the tolls, think about the tolls. The mail were oddly mocking on this. There was a quote from uh, the, uh, the, the, the fabled insider saying, just as Hitler moved around imaginary armies in the dying days of the Third Reich, so the number 10 policy unit is condemned to keep looking at this idea, which exists primarily, primarily in the mind of the PM. There you go. Yeah, but you know, it brings together all his problem areas: Scotland, Northern Ireland, Northwest. You know, in in, in one in one delicious <laughs> package, it radiates out to all of them, and and I think that's uh, part of the appeal. Well, yes, there you go. Uh, appeal used very advisedly there, Roz. Um, thanks for getting up early to fill us in on the week ahead. We'll be seeing you on the next few editions of the podcast as well. Yep. Listeners, thanks for listening. Remember, there's a new show every morning with a panel edition on Tuesdays, and we've got some pretty interesting and big figures for you this week. So subscribe on your favourite app for exciting surprises first thing in the morning. You can get the podcast early without adverts, plus mugs and T-shirts and all kinds of stuff, when you back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>